So last fall, many of you don't know, a good friend of mine, Jeremy Jones, came down to speak at one of our men's ministry porch night events. Uh, and he would talk to us about the topic of models, um, not, not like fashion models, but the models that we look to to kind of pattern our, our lives after. And he opened with an illustration about those commercials that came out of the Dos Equis Most Interesting Man in the World uh, 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 series. And I, I guarantee you remember these things. I would have this sort of dashing older gentleman in these action sequences. And the voiceover would say things, you know, like um, when he drives a car off a lot, the car increases in value. Or he'd say, you know, once a rattlesnake bit him and after five days of excruciating pain, the snake finally died. Uh, or one of my personal favorites, he would be in touch with his feminine side if he had one. These things were hilarious, but what you may not know is the effect that that series had on Dos Equis beer. Apparently, they had an increase in sales of like 22% from 2006 to 2010 when the commercials were running. Every other uh, import beer dropped by 4%. It was an amazing thing and honestly is known as one of the most successful uh, TV commercial campaigns of all time. Well, the actor who played uh, the most interesting man in the world was a guy by the name of Jonathan Goldsmith, and he was asked one time why he thought the commercials were so popular. And he simply responded by saying, I think the campaign's so successful because everybody, including me, wants to be like him. So at Porch Night, our men were listening to Jeremy, and Jeremy was simply making this point that, that this permanent motivator of human behavior really does come from the models that we pattern our lives after. Think about that. Human beings, in many ways, we're just model seekers. We're model followers in, in, our, in our gut. In other words, so much of what you and I call you or me is nothing more than the byproducts of the models that we've patterned our lives after. In other words, as a child, I'm assuming that there was a, a very specific image that you had of greatness or coolness or uh, uh, goodness or maybe even badness that became definitive for you. It defined your life for you. And your life, you know, that image, that ideal began to sort of be what your heart locked in on. And you said, that's the kind of person I want to be. That model became important for you. And the rest of your life is nothing more than a function of that decision that you made. It turns out people have done some really good writing on this. There's a favorite author that I have by the name of Dick Kyes, uh, who is the um, uh, director of an international, um, uh, I guess, what would you call a um, study center uh, called Labrie Fellowship. And he wrote a book called uh, True Heroism, where he said this. He said, we are not motivated only by abstract principles or rules of right and wrong or by rational incentives. We are motivated by stories, images, and accounts of flesh and blood people, fictional characters who have lived in ways that we find exciting, challenging, or admirable. In other words, what he's saying is, is these models are powerful because they have a way of capturing our imagination. We aspire to be like them, and we live our lives after them. And I, I think there's actually a theological reason for this, and that's because God made us that way. Human beings function as, as modeling creatures, or what the Bible calls worshiping creatures. Uh, we are hardwired to follow our fascinations, uh, our delights, uh, our pleasures, even into ruin if the pleasure that we found is a lie. And our life stories become driven by these models. Now, 
My point this morning for us is, is Paul is aware of every bit of this. And so he opens chapter 5 in Ephesians with this simple little admonition, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And look, embedded in that little deceptively simple command is a very profound understanding about the way human beings work when it comes to models. Because Paul, we know, is praying that the imaginations of the Ephesians are going to be fashioned in such a way that God and God alone is their one true model. He's who we're to worship. He's who we're to find fascinating and to, to sort of delight in. And anything else that we elevate to his importance ends up disappointing us or destroying us, depending on what it is. My point this morning is this. Paul is going to present a case that only God has enough wonder to sustain your identity. Only God can tell you who you are. And so he says to imitate him. And so to drive this home, um, he unpacks for us what it looks like in a life of a human being to imitate God. And it's all wrapped around this image of walking. And he says three things. We need to walk in love. We need to walk in light. And we need to walk in wisdom. So those three things is how Paul unpacks it. Let's look at it uh, for ourselves, first of all. First of all, he says to walk in love. Look at verses, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And here goes Paul again. He is once again rooting the command to walk in love in Jesus' love for us. That's what that little word as, as Christ loved us means. It doesn't mean love as Christ loved like him as an example, but you could really substitute the word because, love because Christ has loved us. In other words, to be a loving person means that you have been shown what it means to be loved. And only does that come to us in a real foundation in the cross of Jesus. And again, we've heard this over and over again in our Ephesians study. Paul roots everything that we do in this identity. But you've got to remember this for a very specific reason now, because honestly, things are about to get weird. The reason is because Paul suddenly starts talking about sex. Now, why does he suddenly drift off to that topic? Well, you've got to realize that for a lot of modern hearers, uh, Paul drifting off into sex is very distracting for them. And they would look at it as being a sort of a way in which Christians typically do. I mean, for whatever reason, the world will say, you Christians are so pent up about what you see as bad forms of sexuality. And they postulate things like, well, that's because religious people are sexually repressed. Um, you know, uh, they get fixated on these what they think are aberrant forms of sexuality because they themselves are, are dealing with these Freudian projections of, of their own inner uh, sexually frustrated child or something to that effect. Uh, but of course, I don't think Paul is doing that here. But I do think that it, the, the question deserves an answer. Why is it that Paul is talking about imitating God and suddenly starts to talk about our sex lives? Well, let me, in answering that question, reframe the question a little bit and say simply this. Why, after just talking about the passionate love that God has on the cross, does Paul start talking about false forms of human sexuality? It's a better way to ask that question. And in order to answer that, you really have to have to be rooted in a Christian understanding of what sex is and what it's for. Because here it is. Christianity believes that human sexuality is God's very vivid gift to show us what he wants our relationship to him to be like. Did you catch that? In the Christian view of life, sex is, sex is a metaphor. 
It's an object lesson. You, you might say that it's a, a pointer that points away from itself to God's affection for his people. I wish I could see all of your faces right now because the first time you hear this, it can be a little bit jarring and a little shocking. But the Bible will use sexual metaphors to describe God's relationship with his people all the time. First one that came to my mind was Isaiah 62, verse 4, where God says, As a young man married a maiden, so will I marry you, God says to his covenant people. In the New Testament, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, says where he's, he's warning the Corinthians not to listen to false teachers. And the reason why, he says, is because I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In other words, when Paul is writing Ephesians 5, 2, his mind drifts away to sexual imagery to describe the way God feels about us. But it's false to project upon uh, Paul that he's somehow sexually repressed and sort of um, uh, 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 fixated on sex for some weird, creepy reason, because that fails to understand how the Bible understands sex in the first place. But, th th but that's where Paul's mind immediately recoils at the thought that this wondrous, beautiful sacrament of God's love for his people would ever be twisted into immorality. He can't stand that thought. Because he's saying, if you mess with this sign, this pointer, pointer, you're going to miss the reality of the thing signified. That is a glorious blessing in the midst of God's people. And, and honestly, you really don't have to be a biblical scholar to see that Paul is pretty intense and kind of harsh in what he's saying. And there's no sugarcoating it. Look at verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, that's Paul warning us not to try to make these verses say anything to what they're clearly saying. And so we've got to spend some time figuring out what Paul is actually condemning. And it's basically as two things in verse 3. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Okay, that word uh, uh, immorality is the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. Uh, impurity is the Greek word akatharsia, uh, that when you put that together uh, with the porneia word, you basically are saying Paul is making a sweeping statement about any kind of sexual sin, whether that be heterosexual or homosexual sex acts within the covenant mar of marriage or heterosexual or uh, homosexual sex acts outside of the covenant of marriage. In other words, Paul is operating with a view of human sexuality that only functions the way in which it does when it takes place between one man and one woman in the covenant contract of marriage. That's the ideal. Paul also adds the word covetousness, by the way, on that, which, which basically means to not be satisfied. Paul there is talking about a, a sexual greed, a ravenousness, a, a self-centered sexual life that, that's so preoccupied with the attainment of sexual pleasure that it almost can't think about anything else. Sound like any culture that you know of? He even goes on to say that we're not even supposed to joke about sexuality. Look at verse 4. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. His point is that sex is too powerful and too beautiful a thing to be the topic of a dirty joke. <laughs> or what my high school teacher used to call toilet humor. That does not have a place there. And then finally says that even if we know people who are so involved, verse 7, he says, do not become partners with them. He doesn't mean don't have social contact with them. That's what evangelism is for. 
But what he's saying is, is don't, don't make associations with them. In other words, don't pattern your life after the way in which they do. Okay, so do you see the progression? Paul says, don't abuse sex, don't talk wrongly about sex, and don't associate with those who would draw you into abusing sex yourself. And then, of course, then down comes the hammer in verse 5. He says, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow. Okay, so what is Paul saying there? Well, did you notice there was a familiar word in there? He used the word inheritance. And, and I hope that triggers something from a few sermons back, back in February, I think, from chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul there is talking about the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that the gospel means that when God looks at his people, he feels wealthy. There's joy that he has in his people because we are his inheritance. So Paul uses this word when he's talking about intimacy. That's what the word inheritance pulls, pulls up. So if you follow his logic, he's saying this. If we abuse God's most vivid, again, little s, sacrament and sign of human sexuality, how can we expect to have intimacy with the focal point of that intimacy in God one day in eternity? And, and of course, he doesn't mix his words. You won't. Look, I, I promise you that, I promise you, there is no one listening to this who sort of feels um, more sobering, uh, these, the, these words, than I do. And honestly, my first instinct really is just to kind of skip past it. Let's go talk about something else. I think it's wise, though, for let that kind of strong language wash over us for this reason. Because when you really get down to think about it, these sobering words, they've got hope built right in them. Look, there are varying levels of sexual dysfunction and struggle that people have right now that are watching this video. But the truth of the matter is, um, in the midst of all that shame that comes up when we talk about sex, one of the things we've got to remember is that God wants to be intimate with you. He longs to have nearness with you, and He wants for our sex lives to remind us of that. And what He means is, is any illicit use of sexuality, it pulls you away from that wonderful realization. So Paul says, get rid of it. But every legitimate use, of course, draws you closer. Marital, faithful, giving, rejoicing sexuality is healing for people, he's saying. But we don't do any, ourselves any favors by making provisions for its abuse. So the first thing Paul wants us to model our lives after is, in modeling God is by seeing that our sexuality is kept pure so that we continue to model him in that way. So that's the first point is that we walk in love. The second idea he brings to us in verses 8 through 14 is that we walk in light. Look at verse 8. Paul says that imitating God means to walk as children of light. Okay, so what's he talking about? What's this light he's referring to? Well, it's interesting the way in which he phrases this. Did you notice that he didn't say that the Ephesians used to be in darkness, but now they are in the light? No, what he says is, is you used to be darkness, and now you have become light. That's a, really, that's a really weird way to say that. What does he mean? Well, what he's talking about clearly probably is still the sexual sin that pervaded that culture. But of course it applies to all sin. What Paul is saying this is when you desire as a Christian to follow God's design pattern for life, you become a light to the world. In other words, when you begin to obey 
and follow God's design for the universe, it becomes light to the rest of the world that shows your environment for what it really is. Uh, When a Christian determines to live like a Christian, uh, he shows the dishonesty in a business. Uh, he, he, he sort of brings to light the gossip in the office pool. Uh, he unveils the racism in our neighborhood, uh, the corruption in my politics, the, the drunkenness at my party. In other words, just by simply being a Christian, you make the racism look racist. Uh, we make the, 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 um, the promiscuity look filthy in that regard. Um, just by doing the right thing. Now look, small little aside here. Uh, The psalmist uh, is fascinating to read how often he will complain to the Lord about the abuse that he's taking from his enemies. Um, We cannot expect that when someone decides to do the right thing that the world is going to stand aside and just applaud for us. When people are shamed and they feel that pain, they want to inflict pain on you. And so Paul is coming and giving us an exhortation to say, but don't, don't avoid that for that reason. This is why it says in verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. In other words, he says, as long as you are saying to yourself, we are going to hold our own and be what we believe God has made us to be, whether it's in our sex life or any other area of Christian obedience, stuff starts to get healed. People change. Institutions change direction. Holiness has this contagious aspect to it where a Christian shows up and decides to bring out uh, healing for a world. Let me put it this way. Look, two weeks ago, we talked about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And we began to realize that when Jesus comes back from the dead, he brings things that were dead back to life. And every Christian possesses that exact same admonition. You think about it, I think that's the reason why he does that little quote in the middle of the passage from Isaiah 62 he says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What does he mean? He means that when the resurrection comes, dead stuff comes back to life. And that's our commission as Christians, to be those people. My, my favorite illustration of this happened 15 years ago during the whole Hurricane Katrina thing. Um, was anybody besides me just completely shocked at how quickly that beleaguered city melted into utter chaos? was crazy what went on there. Hey, by the way, don't be one of those people who thinks that you would have done any better had you been in the same circumstance. We all would have gone through that. But what we don't realize is, is it was when Christians loaded up their cars and their pickup trucks with water, with generators, um, with, with, with medical supplies, and went down to meet the need that order was ever reestablished in that place. So much better than FEMA ever did. It was when Christians began to say, it is my job to not push resurrection joy so far out into the future that I miss all the little resurrections that God brings about all the time when his people function as light. When we're light to the world, when we're light to God's people. Christian deeds are light. Look, I realize that we're just in a precarious time with this pandemic, and I think God's been merciful to us thus far. Uh, to keep us sort of um, calm, relatively speaking, in this whole thing. But look, what we call this United States could very easily melt into chaos and, and, and anarchy and violence if we stop being light in this world. It can't happen. And so Paul says, be that light. That's his admonition for us.
So we're supposed to walk in love, we're supposed to walk in light, and thirdly and finally, he encourages us that we need to walk in wisdom as well. Verses 15 through 21 unpack this. Paul says, if you want to imitate God, it's got to be because you learn to love wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is, my favorite definition I ever heard from someone, is simply this. It's competence with regards to the realities of life. In other words, the Christian life is not about the adoption and the commitment to a new and better set of rules. Rather, it's this learning the nuances of life. It's sort of seeing the traces so that we know it so well, we know what it means to act in the world so that it enhances life rather than sort of robbing it. So Paul's mind goes to these three topics that we could probably spend a whole sermon on each, but they're all very interesting as he unpacks what it means to be wise. The first one is this. Verse 16, he says, to make the best use of the time. Christians are those who value time. Why? Because God is the one who invented time. God is the one who gives all kinds of descriptions about how to use our time because he's a God of order. He never wastes anything. And so we can expect that as we do so, it becomes redemptive. It's really interesting that in the NIV, the translation of that phrase, make the most of, is the word redeem. In other words, Paul says, you buy back creation every time you use time as it was intended to be used. You buy it back. You rescue it. Now, look, I realize right now there's probably a bunch of uh, time management sort of productivity hacks that are out there just waiting to share with you these 8 to 10, you know, iPhone apps that really got their life organized. Uh, And I have sort of, you know, distinct issues with those particular people, mostly because I'm one of them, right? But I think Paul is actually speaking much more broadly than that kind of productivity when he's basically getting us to act, ask this question, which is, what am I doing with my time that's contributing to the reordering of creation? And what am I doing that really honestly is just a waste of time? Paul says it's time for us to be wise. Don't be foolish in the midst of this, but use the time. And the way you do that is by keeping the big picture in view. That we always look and do what, the Psalm, what Psalm 90 tells us, to teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Redeeming the time is about seeing beyond our present circumstances to what God is doing, this sort of long view of life. Boy, was there ever a time in which we need to hear that now? We have to not get so caught up in the immediacy of panic that it keeps us from using time well. Second thing Paul says, kind of surprisingly is, is he says in verse 18, to stop getting drunk. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, the old translations used to say. I think Paul knows that when you suffer, you end up finding greater temptation to want to drink the pain away, especially when you're dealing with the shame that he's been describing up until this time. And I realize people want to make excuses right out of the gate. Uh, Well, I'm just drinking a little bit to take the edge off of things. I'm not getting drunk. I do think it's worth asking us what drunk means. That word debauchery, dissipation, literally is translated reckless living. Whenever I have become reckless with my thoughts or my words or my actions, I'm drunk. That's the definition. And the reason why Paul, I think, is frustrated by it is because people are getting hurt by it. Look, we live in a time of a lot of distress in our country right now. I get it. And we're cooped up to boot. I just simply would encourage us to really think carefully about how we consume alcohol during this time. That maybe there might be some wisdom in limiting limiting our use of it. Under normal circumstances, our advice might be different, but 
maybe we should think about sort of cutting that back during these times because of Paul's admonition of what wisdom really is. Thirdly and finally, Paul says, I want you to exchange your dependence on alcohol for a dependence on the Holy Spirit, which sounds really religious to say, but there's something beautiful here because he says you're going to know when the Holy Spirit has started working in you, when he starts to create an inner music inside of your soul, an inner song that starts to get composed inside of your heart with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, what he's saying is there is a relish and a delight that only the Holy Spirit can bring about the gospel. And when it gets inside of you, it just makes your heart sing. And because that song is not connected to our circumstances, you know, it's something that we can use and lean on to weather when it comes bad times. In closing this, one of my favorite quotes from a song is what we talked about back in December when we were talking about the music of Christmas. And the first two verses of my favorite Christmas song go like this. It says, My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear that music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? Hey, what's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that the grace of God, once it gets in you, in the cross, it creates the same dependence on joy that a drunk has for his alcohol. Look, a drunk goes to his alcohol because he's dependent. He's looking for relief there. But of course, it's a lie because it ends up being a prison on the other side. Paul is saying the gospel is so much better. When the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to make God the ultimate source of my fascination, my curiosity, my interest, it begins to light up a song on the inside. And those songs on the inside need to get out. And when they do, it creates a fixation where we begin to model ourselves after that thing that we're looking at. That's what God is suggesting for us. Okay, so as we close, I mean, ask the question, how did you get to be who you are? Who were the models that presented themselves to you, whether real or fictional, that you looked at and said, man, that's what I want to be like? Because so much of who we are is based on that. And so here's my question. When you look at those models and you sort of trace how you became what you are through them, how much of that are you ashamed of? And do you look back and are like, man, I became something I shouldn't have been? Because Paul is saying, therefore, be imitators of God. Because there's a model there that will never fail us, that will never be something that leaves us turning up empty. Quite the opposite. It fills us with joy and gives us the ability to come and be a part of the mission he wants us to be a part. And that mission is changing the world. That's what we're called to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you grant us that? Because quite honestly, this passage has got a potential for a lot of shame, especially when it's attached to sexual discussions, our need to be a light in the world, we worry whether we really have. Um, even, Father, as we look at these points of wisdom and our interaction with alcohol, we struggle there as well. Would you be so good, Father, as to fashion us and to, to help that song take root in us that the Holy Spirit sings? Make us, Father, to be different from where we've always been. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.